Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Broadcasting Network. This program is run with the assistance of the UTS Business School and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. The Australian economy is undergoing a restructuring unrivalled in recent history. That we already know. It's essentially financial Darwinism and as companies shed excess weight to survive, employees inevitably suffer. In today's episode, we'll be tackling the wave of mass redundancies that has swept millions of Australians out of reliable work and left many wondering what their chances are when the dust settles and the job they once had is no longer required. Our guest today is Associate Professor Jonathan Tyler from the Accounting Discipline Group at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School. According to the Fair Work Ombudsman's definition, or the Fair Work Commission's definition, redundancy happens when either an employer doesn't need an employee's job to be done anymore, or the business becomes insolvent or bankrupt. Now, it isn't hard to imagine how many jobs that existed before the pandemic may struggle to find their place in the world when the dust settles. So it seems a fair place to start the conversation. What are the broader financial implications of mass redundancies? Well, economically, it pumps a lot of money into the general economy because redundancies generally result in literally hundreds of thousands of dollars often going into people's bank account. So there is an excess amount of money there. And the question is, do I spend it, obviously not on an overseas holiday, or do I pay off my loans, especially the home loan. Do you think there's a similarity in these discussions between super and redundancy packages that maybe people aren't seeing this lump sum as a nest egg, essentially? I think that there is a substantial difference between it. For instance, if you are under 40, the idea of superannuation in 25 or 30 years time is almost inconceivable. You know, in the industry, they say there are two kinds of people. There are people who don't worry about superannuation and their parents. And it is very much an age thing. If I was advising anyone under 40 what to do about superannuation, I would be loath to tell them because the rules change all the time. And looking at something 25 to 30 years away is really a difficult concept to get into your head. You know, you tend to think, well, in the future, things will take care of themselves. In the future, the world will be different anyway. So in that sense, it's quite different. With redundancy, though, we're actually talking about what am I going to do to live next week? Because given the current economic conditions, Redundancy generally means that the job prospects available for you if you take redundancy are substantially less than they were a year ago. And with the waters already muddied, obviously, with the pandemic, it's hard for the average person to distinguish a voluntary from a non-voluntary redundancy. So is it harder to distinguish the two of these during the pandemic and the way that the entire structure of the economy has been upended? There is a fundamental difference between voluntary and non-voluntary or compulsory redundancy, and that is that if 
for instance, at my own institution, if they get enough people to take voluntary redundancy, then the only people who leave the organisation are the people who look at the bag of money and the future and say, mm, yep, I think I'll take the bag of money. I think it is in my interest to take the bag of money rather than to worry about employment in the future and so on. And perhaps there are um, three classes of people who fall into that situation. The first is the people who have been given a job offer, have a written job offer, and therefore redundancy for them is just a windfall gain. The second group of the people who hate their jobs were about to resign, but fortunately didn't put in the resignation letter. And for them, the redundancy is just a windfall gain. And the third group would be probably the people who are looking to retire. So ideally, from a tax point of view, you need to be between 58 and 66 years of age to get the full tax benefit of this. But even for those people, taking a voluntary redundancy means that you are jumping off the cliff. There is no more fortnightly cash going into your bank account. There is no job to go to at eight o'clock in the morning. It is a big step and a step that people often take by putting in some long service leave first, taking extended holidays to see if it suits them. But this time, you just jump without a parachute. The idea of potentially taking that bag of money that you mentioned, possibly a little bit more viable at the moment, if the alternative is your company essentially saying that your role in that organisation is no longer required, it depends on the organisation as to what the redundancy is. Some organisations offer a general redundancy where they say, look, anyone can apply. We just want to reduce our workforce and then we'll worry about organisation reorganising afterwards um, compared to a compulsory redundancy where it says you, you and you must go. And unfortunately, with compulsory redundancy, you don't have a choice. The only thing the employer is required to do is meet the redundancy requirements of the enterprise agreement. Often they're called voluntary separation benefits. But of course, when it's non-voluntary separation, then unfortunately, it's not very good. And hopefully your enterprise agreement has something that will help to carry you over until a job does become available. And as a general question, is it hard to collate redundancy figures as opposed to just job losses in the data? And if not, what are the current redundancy figures looking like in Australia? It's difficult to separate redundancy from general levels of unemployment. Most organisations where they have permanent employees will be required to offer a redundancy package. Now, the great advantage of a genuine redundancy, and to use the tax terminology, is that while the employer puts in money, you also generally get concessional tax treatments. So you are likely to receive substantially more money than you would receive if your employer simply went, why don't you leave, and here's $50,000 to leave, you'll be taxed heavily on that, while if it's a redundancy package, you are taxed concessionally on that. And in fact, a $50,000 payout may be completely tax-free. So in Australia, redundancies are considered terminations and alongside the protections available to an employee for having their employment terminated, a redundancy 
may also give rise to an obligation to pay the employee redundancy pay, as you've mentioned. Uh, however, there are obviously many exceptions to this requirement. So as you've already mentioned earlier, in general, there's no requirement to pay redundancy pay where the employee is engaged on a casual basis, has less than 12 months of continuous service, or the business has less than 15 employees. So how many Australians are slipping through these cracks and being left between really a, a rock and a hard place at a very difficult time? Yeah, obviously this is an issue that has been um, recognised by the government and that's why we've got JobKeeper and Job Finder programs or Job Seeker programs available to try and provide financial resources for people who are effectively slipping through the cracks and are not being picked up because they are full-time employees or in organisations with more than 15 and so on um, with it, which unsurprisingly is a large number of people in Australia. We've seen this with the casualisation of work and small businesses are generally a part of the economy which is substantially overlooked by most people because they don't have the impact of the Commonwealth Bank or Woolworths on our day-to-day -day lives. However, would you argue that in total they almost have a greater influence? Well, well, they do. And if you think about the people we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, we often deal with very with small businesses, local builders, local plumbers, local shops are almost always small businesses. So yes, they do have a substantial impact, but they are not something that is generally caught up in the enterprise agreement and the taxation requirements of general redundancy or genuine redundancy, as I keep on referring to it as. When you say genuine redundancy, what, what do you exactly mean by that? Okay, it is a tax definition of, of losing your job, not being allowed to go back to it for two years, and also having the redundancy agreement registered with the Australian Taxation Office. And the fundamental reason for that is that you and I set up a business and we simply give each other redundancy every now and then, and it has significant tax advantages. So it's to reduce the chance of people abusing the system and going, oh, look, this is a, general, this is a genuine redundancy. Here is a lump sum of money. Most of it will come tax-free, and next year I'll do the same for you once I'm back on board. So, so there's limits to what can be concessionally taxed in a redundancy situation. Is a redundancy wrought a common occurrence? I very much doubt it. The, the important thing to remember is that this is a recession that has been specifically caused by government action. Now, we don't have time to get into the debate as to whether those government's actions were overactions or underactions or whatever, but it is because of government actions. This is not something that is outside the government's control. You know, the government could have decided to have done absolutely nothing except provide healthcare. And in that case, we wouldn't be in anything like the economic situation we're in. So that in a way justifies why the government has job seeker and job keeper programs, because they actually brought about the recession that we're in. As to a broader use of genuine redundancies, it happens in the community when we get shifts in the economy. For instance, in my own industry, university industry, when certain areas are required for more employment or less employment, 
this brings demands on some sections of the university and reduces demand on other sections of the university. When an organisation changes, when it says, for instance, at the radio station, when we say it is no longer good enough to be able to sit face to face with somebody, you need to be able to use the technology to record interviews and to edit these things and to put them to air remotely and so on. If you don't have those capabilities, how do we then transition to a new situation where those people who don't have the capabilities have a chance to get out, but to get out with some financial benefit in doing so. Does it make it any easier to find work after? If you're applying to a job six months down the line and you've been made redundant in a previous position, how do prospective employers look at that? I would tend to think that redundancy is going to be looked on more favourably than dismissal. Now, of course, it depends on why you were dismissed as to whether you'll ever be able to get a job again or not. But people are more likely to accept that you are out of work because of the general economic conditions rather than you're out of work because you are not the calibre of person that people want to employ. So in that way, I think that there are advantages associated with it. For instance, one would be hard put to find a barista in Sydney that has employment, and yet we know that many of them are exceptionally capable. In times when coffee shops were popping up on every street corner every second day, then if a barista didn't have a job, it would probably have indicated that there was something lacking in their employability. The universities have shed staff and billions of dollars of revenue due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So when we talk about structural changes, which is one of the clear justifications for redundancy, do you see these structural changes having any sort of longevity? Or do you believe that under the current climate with such restrictions on, on revenue that it's simply a matter of cutting weight while it's necessary, and then eventually returning to what we used to describe as normal. Somebody once said opinions are like, and I will use the polite term, bottoms, because all of us have one. And of course, when we're talking about the future, none of us know what the future is going to be. One of the things we do know today is that local enrolment is likely to be higher, almost certainly likely to be higher, among local students because of the fact that universities wish to in some way compensate students and say we are not going to be as strict in our entry standards because we know that you doing the matriculation exam in New South Wales called the Higher School Certificate, you are not going to be able to perform as well as students that went through last year because your study has been interrupted. You have been off campus, you have had to deal with Zoom classes, virtual classes rather than face-to-face classes and so on. So we really can't expect your performance to be able to be comparable with students that went through last year or the year before through the matriculation. Secondly, with a downturn in the economy, there are less jobs available for those coming out of high school. And so the alternative is to go to university. So I think universities will attract that number. And Opera Australia 
just as an example of recently, or in March, stood down the majority of their staff with terms to allow those employees to access up to 80% of their regular salary. However, they've identified a number of roles for redundancy in their organisation, and they particularly cite new and volatile operating environments as the reason for this. Now, many are describing the arts as the canary in the coal mine for structural shifts across the economy, particularly as the closure of venues and social distancing hit their operating model the hardest. Now, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, in an update on Friday, cite job losses more broadly across the economy than anyone could have anticipated. Do you agree that redundancies in the arts are a viable litmus test for the rest of the economy? I am not in a position to be able to comment on on what will happen in the arts. Of course, like the restaurant industry, it is one that has been hit by far the hardest because I don't imagine at the moment there are any live shows available. Given that only 150 of us can attend a wedding, I don't see them in the immediate future allowing 4,000 of us to go to the opera house. Um, different sect of the, uh, sectors of the economy have been hit more. You know, for instance, supermarkets, their sales are up, but in Woolworth's case, for instance, their profits were down because of the extra measures that they had to put in place. And if you've been to a supermarket, you'll know about the idea that not now, but early on, there was a person standing there who made sure that you disinfected yourself as you went in and they've had to provide the trolley wipes and these sort of things with it. So unsurprisingly, some sectors have benefited in the sense of their sales going up, but their costs not going up accordingly. But, you know, we've seen sectors of the economy like Netflix, Amazon, Apple, these have benefited enormously because, of course, they are able to provide their services or their products without the human interaction, which is ideally suited to a pandemic lockdown. According to the National Retail Association, the Fair Work Commission has generally been reluctant to make any determinations to the effect that a business should not have to have restructured its operations in regards to redundancies. So... Do you believe that any business capable of pivoting to a leaner and more efficient operating model, be it through outsourcing, closure of factories and redundancies in the workforce, will inevitably have the support of the Fair Work Commission as every other facet of the economy has no choice but to pivot? Predicting what the Fair Work Commission will or won't do is fraught with danger So I'll take the question in a more general sense um, with it. I think that we will see companies taking on redundancy, hopefully voluntary redundancies, but taking on redundancy simply because it was time for the business to change, to close or whatever. You know, we talk about zombie businesses and they were businesses that if the world hadn't changed at all, if we hadn't had COVID-19, then they probably would have been out of business today. Businesses fail all the time. They fail more when economic conditions aren't great, but even when economic conditions are booming, businesses fail. It is, I suppose, therefore only human to expect that business people who are running a poor business or are running a business poorly, more aptly, those are going to blame the closure of the business on COVID-19. It wasn't my incompetence, it was what the medical, social, political parties imposed on us. 
um, with it. So I can see people taking advantage of redundancy for a whole set of reasons. But if voluntary redundancy is, operate, is offered and the majority of people who leave, leave on a voluntary redundancy program, then I think that there is a certain amount of good in our society. It's a little like people getting access, early access to their super. You will find that the people who complain most about that are the people in the superannuation industry. You know, in the 2019-20 financial year, people took $32 million out of superannuation. The industry charged something like $34 billion in fees in the time. And they don't tell you how many hundreds of billion were actually added to the superannuation stockpile during the time. So everyone has their vested interest to use COVID-19 as a means to do what perhaps they should have been doing anyway. And what do you think of this potential wandering shadow workforce that will be left after COVID-19 whose jobs have been rendered obsolete, even if they have voluntarily left that position? Do you think that there will be a sizable portion of what was once an employed Australia who will struggle to apply the skills and the qualifications that they have? Undoubtedly, that is going to be the case. But also remember that the world has changed continually. You know, farm workers went from ploughing fields with horses to ploughing fields with tractors. And that fundamentally happened in the 1940s in Australia. So people had to change like that. Even in my lifetime, we used to have people called secretaries and they used to do the typing. And then we got to do the typing ourselves. So people had to adapt and change to those conditions. You know, in 1900, the biggest problem facing New York was horse manure. By 1910, the problem had been solved, not by the fact that horse manure was learnt to be disposed of, but a totally new contraption called a motor vehicle had superseded what was the major form of transport. So people who drove horseless drove horses had to learn how to drive horseless carriages or alternatively go to other industries. So structural change has always happened. You know, even, even the invention of the printing press brought about the fact that people who were scribes who copied out books before were replaced by a more efficient means of reproducing books. Well, as Charles Darwin once said, it is not the strongest of the species that survived, not the most intelligent. It is the one that is the most adaptable to change. This ability to adapt will see industries rise and fall, but for the employee, like the scribe, the secretary and the horse-drawn cart, the evolutionary process has been anything but kind. That's about it for today's show. Thank you to our guest, Associate Professor Jonathan Tyler. Make sure to catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week.